Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 4th, 2021 on the West Coast in California. Uh, as regular listeners and viewers of the show know, we have a particular interest in history and learning from history. Uh, I have a particular interest, even a very amateur one, in the history of antiquity. Always making a fool of myself with uh, mistaken references. We had uh, recently, uh, last month, uh, the distinguished classical historian David Potter on the show. He has a new book out, Disruption, Why Things Change. He his 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 knowledge of um, of of uh, excuse me of classical history. Um, uh, he believes, uh, particularly the the stories of Emperor Constantine from Rome, informs how we can explain the disruptions of modernity, from Lenin to Luther, or from Luther to Lenin. Today we have another classical historian on the show talking about the lessons of history. Uh, Edward J. Watts is uh, a professor of, of classical history, of Roman history at the University of uh, California at San Diego and the author of a really interesting new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. Um, Ed, that was a nice introduction. I hope you're going to live up to that as a classical historian, bringing us wisdom from the past. Um, I hope so. Your 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 new book, um, the eternal decline and fall of Rome, uh, is it a warning? Is it um, is it an argument to suggest that we shouldn't fall into the trap of eternally comparing ourselves with Rome, particularly in its decline or perceived decline? Yeah, I think that what the eternal decline and fall of Rome represents is a story that's told multiple times in a lot of different circumstances. So the, the Roman state survives for the better part of 2200 years. And this is, in a sense, the cadence to which a lot of Roman history moves. But what Roman history shows is that the stories and the questions and the comments about the decline of Rome are things that, generally speaking, uh, can fit into three categories. Um, the first category is a decline that's actually happening. You know, there's a problem and the society needs to respond. And so Romans recognize this. And in some cases, they responded by blaming the problem on somebody uh, and not particularly trying to solve the problem, but instead taking vengeance or punishing the people that they blamed for it. Uh, another approach is to approach real problems, but instead rally society together to try to solve those problems in a constructive way. And so if that first approach, blaming people for causing the problems, uh, divides society, the constructive approach brings society together. But I think the most dangerous of these dangerous ideas is something we see probably most frequently in Rome, which is a situation where there is a perception of change being destabilizing or uncomfortable for a certain segment of the population. And what we see in Roman history repeatedly is people try to cynically take advantage of this discomfort by claiming the society is in decline and then blaming other people for it. And so it's this third situation that I think uh, particularly resembles some of the things we've seen in the United States most recently, um, where we've had politicians 
uh, creating a sense of really significant, well, discomfort and unease about changes in society and then blaming other people and taking their rights or their property or their, their liberty in response to that. But I think what COVID has done and what the last year has done is it's given us actually some very real and consequential issues that the United States and the world has to confront. Uh, and so I think we can also learn from Rome about how to take a constructive approach to solving those problems. So I think overall, what we see with the eternal decline and fall of Rome is a set of ways of talking about change that lead us in possible directions. Some of those directions are good and some of those directions are bad. And so the lesson that Rome provides is a set of choices that we can evaluate as we think about how to respond to changes that maybe discomfort us. Uh, you write in the book that the decline of Rome has been a, a, a constant source of, and I'm quoting here, a constant sort of, a source of discussions for Romans and non-Romans for more than 2,200 years. Um, everyone from American journalists in the 21st century AD to Roman politicians at the turn of the 3rd century BC have used the decline of Rome as a tool to illustrate the negative consequences of change in this world. You just kind of explain that. We have a map of, of, of Rome or the Roman Empire, I think, at its height. There was something remarkable about this empire. It wasn't just another empire, was it, Rome, that came and came and went in the blink of an eye. It was a it was um, it was uh, a 2,200-year a uh, political military phenomenon. Yeah, the Roman state is one of the most remarkable things that we see in history because it starts out as a city-state, a very small city-state on the fringes of the civilized world, uh, and it grows into what I think we could call something almost like a nation-state. So it starts out as a city-state, eventually acquires an empire, with Roman citizens and then subject populations. But as you get into the third century AD, those subject populations become Romans. And in 212, they all become Roman citizens. And so the Roman Empire at its peak extended from Britain to Saudi Arabia, from uh, the borders of the Sudan all the way to Russia. Uh, it's a massive, massive space. But during uh, the, the peak of that empire, we also see that this incorporation of people from around the Mediterranean means that everyone is participating in it. And as the Western part of the Roman Empire loses control of its territory, and in particular, um, the Northwestern part of Europe, the empire recenters around the city of Constantinople and it lasts for another thousand years. So an empire that starts in Italy ends in what's now Istanbul, an empire that starts with Latin speaking pagans ends with Greek speaking Roman Christians. And so what Rome gives us is not only a long history, but a history of adaptation and a history of incorporation and evolution, where the state grows and changes as the conditions around it develop in new ways. Uh, one of the things I like about the book, Ed, is that you cover a lot of intellectual ground. Um, you have a section on one of my favorite thinkers, Machiavelli, um, mm -hmm. and particularly on his discourses on Livy, which is his reflection. Uh, I don't know about whether it's on the decline and fall of Rome or on the rise and success of Rome. Um, what does Machiavelli and other Renaissance thinkers bring to this? Are they, are they themselves or were they obsessed with decline or were they mostly focused on rediscovering the glory of Rome? For Machiavelli, of course, it was about the, 
the politics and particularly perhaps the the origins of of some sort of political democracy of representation yeah i think what's very interesting about the the renaissance humanists in italy is they have a different conception of the fall of rome um, than what we have now for them the fall of rome is something that comes out of the end of the roman republic and so rome is a republic for about 500 years until the first emperor augustus ends that and creates a structure that becomes the roman empire and then it survives for another 1500 years as an empire when we talk about the fall of Rome now in the West and in the United States in particular, we talk about the fall of the empire. Uh, but for Machiavelli and people like Flavio Biondo, they were talking instead about the end of the Republic. Uh, and for Machiavelli in particular, he's concerned with the lessons that we can take from the Roman Republic that you can then apply to contemporary Florentine politics and contemporary Italian politics. And so he's really concerned with the question of republicanism and what we can learn from Rome to have a better sense of what can work politically in a contemporary context. Uh, and this is a, a tendency that you also see in people like Montesquieu, who is also looking at the Roman Republic and seeing the end of the Republic as, in a sense, the apogee of Roman power and the beginning of the, the sort of de-evolution of Rome. Um, but what, what Montesquieu in particular is thinking is that basically Rome as a republic was so successful that it got this huge head start. And so it had all of this uh, sort of built up uh, energy and resources. And so that's why it took so long for this state to actually fall um, when its decline started, in his view, with the end of the republic. He sees it as a republic that was so successful that it put itself so far beyond any rivals. It took more than a millennium for that state to actually come apart. The figure that most people, of course, associate with the the writing about the fall and crisis of Rome is the English historian uh, Edward Gibbon. His uh, iconic book, the the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, I think, remains a bestseller. You have another interesting section on that. What's Gibbon's take? How does he fit into the narrative, Ed? So it's very interesting because I think Gibbon, um, Gibbon revolutionizes the way that people think about Roman decline. Uh, the decline of Rome as Gibbon sort of inherits it is this idea of the Republic declining. And it's an idea that you see Renaissance humanists um, you see people like Montesquieu in the 18th century embracing. And what Gibbon does is he moves the peak of Rome away from the Republic. He starts his work in 180. He starts his work with the death of Marcus Aurelius. And he actually says that the empire is the peak of Rome, not the Republic. <clears throat> and Gibbon is, of course, writing this in the 18th century in a period right before the French Revolution, when it looks like you have a series of monarchies in, in Europe that have established a kind of balance uh, that secures prosperity and secures generally peaceful relationships in Western Europe. And so when Gibbon is writing, he's writing with a, a view towards explaining through Roman history, a, a conception of European power balances that he's, he believes he's living under. And the interesting thing is he publishes the first volume in 1776, right when the American Revolution is beginning to shake this foundation and the work ends, the last part of it is published right before the French Revolution explodes the entire social structure uh, and political structure that Gibbon had in a way written this to explain. 
Uh, and so what Gibbon's book becomes is instead of a, a commentary on the contemporary realities of, of Gibbon's world, it instead becomes this sort of conceptual history that doesn't exist in a contemporary framework because the contemporary framework disappears almost when the book appears. And so Gibbon's work has become this, in a sense, warning for people looking at Roman history uh, that causes them to think about decline and fall in a way that is disaggregated or disassociated from the contemporary world that prompted Gibbon to write in this way. And so the story of the decline and fall of Rome becomes a timeless one in Gibbon's telling. Uh, and this is, I think, but, uh, why... Timelessness uh, for historians, as you know, Ed, is, is, is delusionary and we can never escape time. You... You can't. You, you, you make it clear in this book that this book is driven by contemporary um, American realities. Um, you say that uh, uh, you, you, um, you, you wrote the book because of the origins, uh, as a way of challenging some of the, the narratives of the alt-right and the decline of Rome. What drove you to write this book? I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly correct. What was really prompting me? Sorry to, sorry, sorry, to quote you, you say, yeah. uh, and and you you talk about a conversation with a colleague. Uh, we were concerned about how alt right figures and white nationalists used events from the fourth and fifth century Roman Empire to attack immigration in the twenty first century. So, 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 like all great historians, uh, you are very much driven by contemporary events. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think what we see with Roman history following Gibbon is the the story of Roman decline becomes something that exists as a point of reference that people can invoke whenever it is that something is discomforting them. Um, so another colleague of mine has said that one of the, the games that a lot of people like to play is uh, if something is bothering you, you insert the idea of the decline and fall of Rome, and then you just mention whatever issue is bothering you. Um, and I think what we've seen recently is this has become something that's quite common in fixating on or, or attacking elements of our dynamics in our society and changes that particularly discomfort people. And so the fall of Rome is something that we've seen used in conservative political circles uh, in places, not just in the United States, but also um, in Spain, for example. But the issue of Roman decline is something that can evoke all kinds of consequential outcomes uh, from changes that people are upset about. And so you can project, in a sense, the thing that discomforts you to an end point that results in the end of a society by using the example of Rome to suggest that that trajectory is something we're seeing now. Yeah, and you, uh, I didn't actually realize this, but you know that one of the first, certainly uh, con relatively contemporary American politicians to use the fall of Rome as an argument uh, for making sense of America was Ronald Reagan. You say, um, the, uh, you, you're quoting Reagan here from a speech. The young men of Rome began avoiding military service. They took to using cosmetics and wearing feminine-like hairdos and garments until it became difficult, the historians tell us, to tell sexes apart. That's the opening salvo in one of uh, Reagan's uh, culture wars and using Rome. How important is uh, Reagan in evoking the fall of Rome in terms of comparing it to America? So I think there's a couple things that are interesting about what Reagan is doing there. He's writing this in 1970. And so he's talking about the fall of Rome. Um, but what he has not done is actually read Gibbon. 
And so he's read someone who's talking about surprise, Gibbon. Surprise, surprise, right? I yeah, can't imagine I mean, Ronald Reagan having the patience to read Edward Gibbon. So he admits that he's not actually reading the history. He's not, of course, reading Roman history from the period, but he's not even reading Gibbon's history. He's reading someone's view of Gibbon's history and then applying it to the conditions of the time. And when you read this speech, what you see is Gibbon or um, Reagan is actually attacking the structure of university education in the United States. Uh, and as governor in California, of course, he did a lot to attack the structures of the University of California structures uh, to try to address issues with um, what he saw as a degeneration of educational standards. Uh, and so Reagan is one of the first American politicians to use this idea of Roman decline without any actual experience looking at what the Roman decline he's talking about actually was. Uh, and so this becomes a tendency that Reagan um, really uses aggressively in 1970, but you see it over and over again um, in conservative political speech and conservative media in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and of course, you're still seeing it today. But Ed, it's not just the right that used Rome. One of my favorite books from the early 2000s is Colin Murphy's Are We Rome, which was an analysis of America. I'm not sure if it's from the left, but he's certainly not a conservative, more of a progressive writer. And indeed, recently, uh, um, when uh, when Walter Isaacson uh, reviewed the book in the Times in 2007, he talked about the empire in the mirror. Again, Isaacson's certainly not a conservative. Uh, and recently, uh, Murphy has a new piece out in the Atlantic comparing the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. to the turbulence in the Roman Republic and even compares the Trump presidency and Trump as a kind of child to the fourth and fifth century history of Rome in which children rule. So it's not just conservatives who have um, attached themselves to the idea of decline in terms of a warning about America, is it? No, I think that that's true. And Murphy's book, um, in particular, we have to think about that in the context of the Iraq war and the lead up to these, um, you know, and then the lead up to the wars in the Middle East. And Murphy's, uh, interests when he was writing that is a critique of American military interventionism and the idea of American military empire extending across the world. Um, and so that's actually, in some ways, I think, a critique of, well, basically rightist policies or interventionist policies that we saw in the early part of this century. Uh, I think it's interesting that what we're seeing now, uh, especially on the left, is the use of the Roman Republic as a way to critique what has been seen as creeping authoritarianism in the United States. And that's, uh, and that's an old trope of both Machiavelli and Montesquieu, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And Beyonder, too. Um, and it's, it's this idea that extends for a long period of time that what we see with Rome's creep towards authoritarianism and ultimately the collapse of the Roman Republic is in a sense a very significant warning for smaller and less established republics. Um, and that's one of the things that, that greatly concerned some of the Florentines who were thinking and writing about Roman political history uh, when they lived under the Florentine Republic that always seemed like it was on the verge of some crisis that might tip it into an authoritarian state or an authoritarian condition. Uh, recently, well, not so recently, last year we had the... Uh... Boston University historian Ruth Ben Giet on the show. She had, I don't know if you've seen this book, it's called Strong Men. It's a 
successful book about the the history of authoritarianism associated with um, str- with strong men, quite literally, focusing on Italy, on Mussolini in particular, uh, and on Berlusconi. And of course, mm-hmm. she compares Berlusconi and Mussolini with Trump. When we think of uh, Rome, um, uh, Ed, we, we think of men, we don't think of women, and we think of a kind of sexualized politics. What can and should the history of the decline of Rome tell us about the politics of gender of men and women? Is, is there much to learn from the way in which Mussolini in particular fetishized the masculinity of Rome? I think that's a very interesting question because when you look at Roman history, what you see is um, women are extremely powerful in ways that are kind of below the surface. And so one of my favorite exa- my favorite instances in all of Roman history comes when the future Emperor Augustus is trying to consolidate power and needs more resources to pay soldiers. And so he has already killed or confiscated the land of all of the male opponents that he can manage to, to round up. And so he institutes a tax on women who have significant property, but legally uh, are not politically active in a way that would allow you to prescribe them, to kill them, you know, to confiscate their property because they're disloyal. And so you have to tax them. And what Augustus does is he tries to institute a tax on these women. uh, And the daughter of one of the most famous orators in Republican Rome, a woman named Hortensia, comes before the Senate and makes a really extravagantly powerful speech in which she says, in essence, this is unjust. And Augustus and his advisors try to figure out how they can silence her. And they realize they really can't. You know, that as a woman, she's speaking for principle. She can't hold office. She can't get elected. Uh, She comes forward to speak because she feels deeply and with great conviction that the issue she's bringing forward is an issue of justice. It's not cynically advanced. It's not for self-aggrandizement. It's because this is a position that she feels is just. And Augustus ultimately realizes he can't do anything to her. And the speech Hortensia gives ends up being published. It ends up being disseminated. It ends up representing this this speech of kind of pure motive that is expressed uh, because it expresses principle. And it's popular because it expresses these principles. And so I think when we talk about gender actually in Rome, What we have to see is there are ways in which women are very powerfully able to to work situations to their advantage, um, but they do it from the background. They do it from the shadows. Uh, And in some ways, this is actually a powerful position because it insulates them from the sort of retaliation that a male politician who takes these positions would potentially face. What about the issue of sex? Uh, ben Gia has this wonderful quote. One thing was, writing about Mussolini, one thing was certain, once Mussolini entered your life and your vagina, you were never free of him again. Um, how rampant was the, the, uh, the, the, the sexualized nature of politics in Rome? And, and what should that teach us on a day where uh, Andrew Cuomo, of course, is under investigation and we are ourselves facing uh, more and more questions about male bis- misbehavior when it comes to political power. Yeah, I think that we see, generally speaking, um, that there are powerful women. There are women who really know how to work within this system to get what they want. 
And as we run through Roman history, we, we see a, a great number of these working at the very pinnacle of Roman power. So, you know, the Empress Irene actually reigns, reigns and rules over the empire herself. Um, the Empress Zoe in the 11th century also takes power and runs through a whole sequence of, of men who are married to her, uh, who she disposes of when they become inconvenient or disagreeable. Um, but generally speaking, you're exactly right that this is a, a very male-dominated society. And if you're not in a position of influence, if you're not a woman like Hortensia or Zoe or Irene, you are in a position where you can be exploited in that society. Uh, and this is especially true of, of regular women, where uh, child marriage is extremely common. Um, women are generally married in their teens to men who are probably in their 30s. Um, a lot of things that we would be greatly uncomfortable with are regular parts of how Roman life functioned. Uh, and so I, I think that it's absolutely correct that we have to understand for average women, this is a very difficult time to be alive. It's not a society that values them equally. They couldn't vote in the Republic. Um, their citizenship was very deliberately conditioned on uh, statuses and actions that were less involved than men. Um, but I think we also make a mistake to disregard the fact that there are women who understood how to work very effectively in that society. And the story of, of gender in the Roman Empire is a story in which both of those aspects need to, I think, be appreciated. Uh, that there are lots and lots and lots of people, hundreds of millions of women who are exploited in this society in very horrible ways. Uh, but there are also women who figure out how to function effectively in that society. And the, the true story of Roman history is one that has to include both of those perspectives. When, Be uh, when, when Ben Giat was on the show pre-January 6th of this year, um, she, she, she notes in her book, the authoritarian playbook has no chapter on failure. It's not surprising that most authoritarians leave office involuntarily. What does the history of Rome, I know that's a broad subject, particularly given your book, but what does it tell us about succession, particularly in the wake of Trump's attempt to uh, seize power illegally or, or maintain power illegally? Uh, you generally, as a Roman emperor, have the job for life, whether you like it or not. And I think that there are certainly Roman emperors. Just like the who... Queen or the Supreme Court or the, the English royal family or the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. But I think in, in uh, difference with the English royal family right now, uh, this is a job that requires and requires you to make the ultimate decisions in the society and to bear the blame if those, if those decisions go sideways. Um, and so there are definitely emperors where I think if you look at their careers, uh, it becomes clear that some of them really didn't want the job or enjoy the job particularly, um, but they're stuck there. It also means that if you're an ambitious politician and you really want to run the empire, you need to kill somebody to do it. Uh, and it's not really until we get deep into the Byzantine period, um, when the Eastern Roman Empire is based in Constantinople, that we see the state come up with a mechanism to remove people who were serving as emperor. Uh, and generally what they do is they either mutilate them so that they're not eligible to serve as emperor anymore, or they pack them off to a monastery. But you're almost a thousand years into the history of the Roman state before you come up with a mechanism to get these people out of office when they're doing a bad job that doesn't require killing them. Uh, Ed, uh, Ben Geert also quotes Berlusconi, one of the masters of 
reinventing the past. Uh, he, he wrote um, or said, perhaps, if something doesn't appear on television, it doesn't exist. Mussolini, of course, was also a master of media, of imagery. Um, to what extent were the Romans themselves masters of their own imagery, of building fetishes of history, of, 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 of creating illusion and delusion? Reagan, of course, like Berlusconi, was also a master of television. Romans were spectacularly good at this. So I'll give a couple of examples that, that can show how this works. Um, Julius Caesar was a politician, obviously, in Rome who spent the better part of 10 years conquering what's now France. And Caesar knew that this was a quite distant place and a very different kind of environment than anything Romans were familiar with. And so Caesar's Gallic war commentaries are basically narratives of the campaign that frame Caesar and his soldiers in a heroic light. And familiarize Romans, not just with Caesar's victories, but with the conditions of the place that Caesar has conquered. And so this is a way of managing uh, the kind of media environment of the 50s BC to give Caesar a profile that would enable him to become one of not only the most powerful Roman politicians, but the most popular Roman politicians. Um, another example that we see that is in some ways even more interesting is the Emperor Justinian. So the Emperor Justinian uh, leads the Eastern Roman Empire in the sixth century and presides over a massacre of a couple tens of thousands of people in the city of Constantinople. He uses the most famous writer of hymns at that time, a man named Romanus the Melilode, uh, to create hymns that celebrate what Justinian has done and the reconstruction of Constantinople that Justinian undertakes as basically a gift that Justinian was giving to God. And what Romanos does is he inserts this into the liturgy that every Roman Christian is supposed to sing uh, in church. And so they are coming into church as worshiping and singing these hymns that frame Justinian, not as a murderous tyrant, but instead as a, an agent of God who is bringing about Roman repentance in the face of sinfulness. And so this is a way of manipulating the experience of participating collectively in a media environment uh, and making it so that people not only hear the propaganda, they participate in making the propaganda. Uh, Ed, you end the book um, on, on the issue of, a, or with the, a, the issue of agency, you say that it's up to us to make a future which is better, but your book is about the eternal decline and fall of Rome. It's extremely readable and erudite book, and you are obviously extremely articulate on this. What's the one lesson you've drawn from Rome in terms of making America a better place? I think the lesson that I take away that is, I suppose, most inspiring to me is this lesson from Marcus Aurelius, from the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Um, the reign of Marcus Aurelius is objectively a terrible time to be living in Rome. Uh, it's a moment when the empire's hit with smallpox, it's a moment when the empire is facing invasions on multiple fronts. Uh, it's a moment when politically the empire is not the most stable place. But what Marcus decides to do is confront these problems not by targeting individuals and blaming them for causing the problems, but instead by trying to identify what every Roman has the capacity to do to improve the situation. And so he tries to delegate and assign tasks based on what people are capable of doing. And he praises them when they do the tasks well. And we see this in historians, but we also see this in Marcus's own writing. Is this stoicism, Ed? 
Yeah, this is stoicism. Um, and this is what Marcus is, is trying to bring to bear. In- which, is, which has become quite a fashionable subject. More and more people are writing books about how we should become stoics. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they, Marcus- some of these people uh, doing justice to the, to the notion of, 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 of Roman stoicism, or are they, are they making it, are they Americanizing stoicism? I think that there's a balance there. Um, One of the challenges we have with Stoicism is most of our sources for this Greek cultural and and philosophical tradition are actually Roman sources. Uh, And we have them at different moments in time. And so the analysis of Stoicism that we have is, in a sense, um, going to always be an analysis of Stoicism that comes out of the initial context that created Stoic philosophy. Uh, So it is always something that's an applied philosophy as we interact with it. Uh, right. but I think, Sorry, go on. Ed. Yeah, I think what we see with Marcus is stoicism applied not just as a personal philosophy, but as a governing philosophy, where what you're supposed to do as a stoic who's governing a state uh, is think about how best to make the state perform to its ultimate capacity. And what Marcus is doing is applying the lessons of stoicism in this kind of large scale macro way to recreate a society that is struggling to rebuild itself in the face of a whole bunch of very serious crises. Well, that's one more lesson of Rome. Uh, Edward J. Watts' new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, answers many questions, asks many others. Marvelous book. It's out today. Congratulations, Ed. Uh, You are in your office in San Diego, um, out of the sunshine. What else should people be reading? We've got the masks back in force in California, so I think we have to stay at home. Anything else worth reading in addition to your new book? Yeah, I think in this moment, one of the books that I think is is particularly useful is looking at Kyle Harper's The Fate of Rome. Uh, And the subtitle kind of says it all, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. Wow. Um, What what Kyle is doing is looking at pandemics. He's looking at environmental change. He's looking at climate change. Um, it is, in a sense, a, a new way to think about what we're facing now by looking at Rome to give us some inspiration. Well, we'll have to get Kyle on the show. Edward J. Watts, real honor and a pleasure. Wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the new book. Just one more reference to it. The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome out today. Uh, we'll have to have you back on the show. Best of luck. Keep well and keep thinking about Rome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I had a great time.